Deuteronomy chapter 2, Sunday nights through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we find ourselves in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the children of Israel, as you remember from last week, they are now uh, camped. It is the second generation. The first generation has died off in the wilderness. This is the second generation, and they are camped on the plains of Moab, on the east side of the Jordan, directly opposite of the city of Jericho, which will be the first city that they will conquer in their conquest of the land. And Moses now is going to give them in the final, oh, 37 days or so of his life, a series of five sermons uh, in, to prepare them spiritually for the land that they're going to go in and possess. The theme of each of the sermons is identical. The theme is obedience. And so there's an old saying, and the old saying goes something like this, as he's using this very first sermon that goes from chapter 1 uh, almost all the way through uh, uh, chapter 4. And the theme of that first sermon is he's giving, it's obedience, but he's giving them a message on obedience uh, from the background of their history. He's telling them about their history. And the old saying is, is that if we don't learn from history, then we're doomed to repeat it. And uh, since man's history is not something you want to really repeat, and even their recent history, was not a very good history they didn't want to repeat it so they needed to learn from their history and the single great point of this sermon you know sermons don't have to be complicated they, they just need to make a point and they need to make a, an important point and the and the simple point that Moses is making to them is now let's look at our history every time we've disobeyed God it's been bad Every time we've obeyed God, it's been good. So, let's obey God. Now, I mean, that'll preach as well today as, you know, however many thousands of years ago. We need to hear it often. So that's basically the point that he's making to them. And he's kind of gotten through in chapter 1, laying out to them uh, kind of the bad side of their history. And now he's going to speak to them about, okay, let's talk about all these good things that God is doing. And every time we've obeyed Him, let's notice uh, how, what a blessed life we've had as a result of it. So he ended verse uh, 46 of, of uh, chapter 1, and he said, So you, remem- re- so you remained at Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. And then we turned and we journeyed into the wilderness uh, of the way of the Red Sea, into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and we skirted Mount Seir for many days. And so he's talked about the first generation. They've died off out in the wilderness. Now he picks up their history where there came that point in time where the first generation had died off, and God now speaks to Moses and says, All right, got the second generation now. Let's move forward. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward and command the people, saying, You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourself carefully. So God's going to bring them to the promised land, but from where they are... Uh, at the time they were camped there till they got to uh, where they're camped on the plains of Moab they're going to have to go through some uh, different territories some of it uh, most of it fairly hostile some of it mildly very mildly friendly toward them and uh, so uh, one of the Nations that they had to travel through because all of this, this isn't just wide open area, deserted area. Uh, they're making their way toward the promised land through inhabited nations. They're also a very large group of people, two to three million people. And you just don't cut through people's country without getting noticed. And so the first place that they were, uh, uh, area of land or nation that they were going to cut through would be the land of the Edomites. He describes it there in verse 3 or verse 4 as them being your brethren, the descendants of Esau. And you remember Esau was the brother uh, of Jacob and uh, patriarch of Israel, Abraham, Jacob, and uh, Isaac. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, rather. So we get the order right there. But he, so he is a brother. He's a blood relative uh, of, of Abraham, kind of 
uh, through uh, Abraham and Isaac. So he said, when he speaks to them of your brethren, you're going to cut through the land of the Edomites. They're all descendants of Esau. It's kind of interesting. You go to Israel uh, today, and especially in uh, the city of Jerusalem, and there's uh, East Jerusalem, which is uh, largely Arab, and then the rest of Jerusalem is, is largely Jewish, though there are different uh, you know, pockets of um, Armenian and, uh, and then a Christian quarter, and it's kind of a mix, but it's pretty dominated by and under the control of, of the Jews. They control the whole thing, actually, but I mean, a, 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 a kind of their thing. And uh, so sometimes we'll go over into East Jerusalem in order to get uh, a look at the Temple Mount. It's the best place when we're doing a tour of Israel to see that particular side of Jerusalem. And uh, a lot of uh, the Arab folks will come out and they're selling different things because we're tourists and they have things to sell and that's how they make their livelihood. So they, uh, they, they sell things. And our guide, most often our guide, is a, is a Jewish man by the name of Naftali Cohen. And uh, so Naftali's trying to tell us some things, and we're trying to share a few things there. And, uh, and they want to sell their things, and they're very polite. And, uh, but they'll ask Naftali for permission to kind of, uh, you know, let the group know about the camel rides and about the panoramic pictures of, of Jerusalem and the bookmarks and that kind of thing. And very often uh, they'll call out to Naftali and they'll say, Cousin, cousin! And, uh, and sometimes people, Christians get, what do you mean, cousin? And sometimes we forget that the, much of the Arab population are, they are blood relatives with the Jews. They are descendants of Abraham. And so they recognize themselves as descendants of Abraham, but the Jews are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they are brethren, they're just not Jews. And you're going to pass through their land. And when you go through their land, they're going to be afraid of you. They're not just not used to a two or three million person parade making through, going through their land, even if it is blood relatives. And so, therefore, watch yourself carefully. Don't meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep. So he says to them, you go through that land. I want you cutting through that land. It's not part of your land. It's not part of the promised land. It's not for you. Because... I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Now, this is very important to us to notice. When God takes the children of Israel and He brings them into the promised land, that's not the only group of people He ever did that with. In fact, it's not the first group of people that He did that with. He took the Edomites and He gave them the land of Edom. And He determined, this is the land that I want the descendants of Esau to have. And he gave them that land. And he gave them uh, the ability to conquer that land and to possess that land. What it speaks to us of is this. Is that when God gives the promised land to the children of Israel, he gives them Israel, the, nation, the, the, the land of Canaan, the land of, of Israel. It wasn't a... Th- when, uh, when he gave them that land and he told them to conquer that it was um, very, very measured. It wasn't the idea that he said to the Jews, now listen, you're the chosen people and you're my favorites in the whole world and you can just go beat up on whoever you want. You can take anybody's land you want. That's not how it worked. And God didn't understand it that way and certainly the Jews didn't understand it that way. God said to them, I got a specific piece of land for you. Here's the eastern border, the western border, the southern border, and the northern border. That's the land that I sovereignly give to you. I'm not giving you the land of the Edomites. You can't just take land. That's not how it it works. And so sometimes even today when people look and they say, look at Israel, they're in the land, and do they have a right to the land and all? God gave them the land. That's the land that He has given to them. That's the land that He promised to return them to, and it's their land. But they're not free to take other land. God said, right, these are the borders, this is what I want you to have, and that, that's what you can have. And, and so he'd done this, this was an un, uh, unprecedented, he'd already done this for other people. So don't meddle with them, I've given all uh, Mount Seir, that area of the world, to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat, and you, also, you shall also buy water from them with money. Pay for water? Uh, in that part of the world, you pay for water more than you pay for food very, very dry part of the world that you may drink, especially when you've uh, got a two to three million person camping trip. And for the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. 
Now, he's talking here to the second generation. Now, you think you put yourself in the, in the second generation. Here you are. You're, uh, they, the first generation fails at uh, Kadesh Barnea. They do not enter the land in obedience and in faith to what God commands them to do. And, and in fear and, uh, and w- deliberate disobedience, they rebel against God. And God says, all right, everyone from 20 years old and above, you are not going to inherit this land. That was kind of the adult age, the ability to kind of bear arms for the nation. So what if, what if you're 19? Wow. You just spent the last 40 years of your life, and you're 59 years old. You're no pup. Not even for life expectancy in those days. And so they spent 40 years of their life tromping around and in that wilderness and all because of the sins of their fathers. And it wasn't like God didn't recognize they've been through something hard because of the sins of of the previous generation. So God speaks very, very lovingly to this second generation. He's going to bless them like crazy and make them forget, you know, whatever sacrifice was a part of their life because of the sins of their fathers. But he he speaks to them now very kindly and and he recognizes the difficulty that, that they've had. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness these 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So he's compassion on them. And when we pass beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites who dwell in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Elath and Ezion Geber, we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. So now he's going to talk about uh, the, the land of the Moabites. And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab. And, and so the Moabs were a group of people. They were also blood relatives of the children of Israel because they were descendants of Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. And so do not harass Moab, nor contend with him in battle, for I do not give you any of their land as a possession because I have given our to the descendants of Lot as a possession. That's not your land. I give it to somebody else. The same thing I'm doing with you related to Canaan, I've done with them. Don't touch what I have given to them. And then here in uh, verse 10, uh, there's a a little kind of a a pause to kind of explain how it is that the Moabites came to conquer the land that God had given them in the the wilderness of Moab. The Emim had dwelt there, and that's a group of people, had dwelt there in times past. And these Amim, they were a people as great and numerous and as t- and tall as the Anakim. Now back in chapter 1, verse 28, when the, when the spies came back in, the ten unfaithful spies who came back from the, uh, and gave the negative report of the land, the twelve spies that went in to spy at the promised land, one of the things they came back with was they said, you can, they've got giants in the land. I mean, these... They, Every one of them could play in the NBA. They're huge. And the giants in the land, the Anakim, we can't defeat them. And, and so that was one of the things. We can't defeat a people that's more, you know, stronger than us and more physically impressive than us. But the point that God's going to make here is that the Moabites went in and they, they dispossessed the Amim from their land and they were giants too. And the Moabites didn't have attached to their life and to their people anything that even remotely approached the purposes that that God had attached to the Jews and to the nation of Israel. He's going to bring the Messiah into the world through the Jews. God bless the Moabites. God bless the Irish. God bless the Scottish. But He did not bring the Messiah into the world except through the Jews. And he gave us the Old Testament Scriptures and most of the New Testament Scriptures through the Jews. We have much to be thankful for. So the plans that were attached to the Jews, much more significant. So if God is going to do, uh, if he's done the same thing for the Moabites uh, with less at stake, how much more is he going to be faithful to dispossess the Anakim in the promised land when the Jews finally hit him? That's the point that he's making there. So, he said there, uh, 
the, they were, uh, they, these Amim were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them uh, Amim. And the Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but uh, now we move to the uh, uh, Edomites and, and descendants of Esau. So the Horites, these were giant people too. They formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place just as Israel did the land of their possession which the Lord gave them. And so Moses is writing this now in a kind of a retrospect of the, uh, of the conquest of, of the promised land, or somebody is in this parenthetical uh, uh, passage right here. So Esau went in, Edomites, and they dispossessed the Horites. Why? God determined that they should do it. And God gave them the power and the ability to do that. And if he did it for the Moabites and he did it for the Edomites, he's going to do it for the children of Israel uh, also. And so that's the point that he's, he's making uh, to them. And the point that he's driving home to the children of Israel at this point is, your God, ladies and gentlemen, you're going in to conquer the promised land, and you're going in and, and, and you're obeying God to go in and conquer the promised land, and your God already has a long and proven history of defeating and displacing giants. You don't have to look around and say, the children of Israel weren't even doing something unprecedented. There's already a history for it. You know, I like that. God just comes along and says, listen, I'm good at removing giants. I've given you a land to possess. I've given you a New Testament to possess. I've given you all the promises of that New Testament to possess. And yeah, there are going to be giants in the land. There are going to be giants from your past life. There's going to be giants that are going to rise up in your face while you appropriate these promises into your life. But I already have a long history of displacing and defeating giants. Sometimes I read articles and I, I don't, uh, that have a particular theme to them. And I don't necessarily get troubled by them so much when I read um, secular people or people who don't believe in the God of the Bible when they write them. But I really get troubled when I, when I read people who profess Christ, profess to follow the God of the Bible when they write them. It's like they, they come to know the Lord, and you know how that happens when we come to know the Lord, and here we are, so, we're so wet behind the ears, and we're so green, and we're so messed up so often, and all we know is that we need hope, and we need meaning for our life, and we need forgiveness, and we need a fresh start, and we need all these things. And you know, we're just dumb enough, and I say that in a sanctified sense, to read the Bible and believe the whole thing, and believe this is true about my life, and that this is who Jesus is, and this is what he's purchased for my life, and to begin to appropriate that into my life, and changes start to occur in my life. And then a funny thing happens after sometimes after people, especially really smart people, and I don't use smart in a sanctified sense, after they walk with the Lord for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and they start to study things and they start to study, you know, all of the different ologies of the world and this and they look at the statistics of that and this and the tendencies of this and the people that get involved in this sin or they have these giants in their past. You know, here is the success rate for them coming out of that and the life being changed and all this kind of stuff. And you hear even Christians talking about it and it really bugs me. I stand in control but it bugs me. And I'm so glad I didn't read anyone like that before I became a Christian. Because when I became a Christian, I needed to know that my God had a long history of fixing people like me. No matter what those like me things were. And I believed that to be true of Him. And He proved it to be true in my own life. Doesn't mean I don't face giants. Doesn't mean I don't face opposition and in growing into the, the life that God has described in the New Testament. But I've experienced His power. 
And so to take and say, well, if a person comes from this background out of the world or that background or they've been in bondage to this sin or that sin, and statistically it shows that those people never change, and I hear Christians saying it, I just, it troubles me. Because where in the world are we going to go in this world for hope in the light of our sin? And I say, what about the Bible? If any man be in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It is God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit that comes into our lives when we're born again. So when we face these giants that have dominated our lives, we can look at them and say, My God has a long proven history of displacing sin like you and things like you in human history, and I move forward in faith on the basis of that. There is no explanation, other explanation, for my life tonight other than that fact about God. The life that I am living every single day in the light of where I come from and the strength of the pull of my flesh towards sin and selfishness, the life that I have is not a byproduct of positive thinking or great strength that's now well-focused. I'd be an ash heap by now, it, 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 the, the age I am, apart from Christ. It's a testimony to the power of God. And I know that that's true of you. But I, I want to rebuke any spirit or any kind of stronghold or even a foothold that's been gained in any one of our lives that starts to look at things more technically than the way that God does or with unbelief and the way that this first generation looked at things and they look at the Anakim and look at how big the cities are and they've all got walls and, and then what we do is we've got now a self-fulfilling prophecy because we never ever experience the victory because we never engage in the fight. God entered your life in my life when we became Christians. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who will never be proved a liar, my life will never disprove a promise of His, His Word, and He will make sure that it never happens. So we have a God who has a long proven track record of taking people into His promises and into the life that He has for us. And that is in, it, it, to be an encouragement to the children of Israel thousands of years ago. It is to be an encouragement to our lives uh, tonight. Now, we pick things up in verse 13. In the light of that, now rise and cross over the valley of Zered. And so we crossed over the valley of Zered. And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea which is where they failed to enter into the land because of disobedience and unbelief, until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years, until all the generation of the men of war, 20 years and above in the first generation, was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had promised, had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them, to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. And so it was, when all the people, the men of war, had finally perished, finally, finally, finally perished from among the people, that the Lord spoke to me, saying, This day you were to cross over the, at Ar, the boundary of Moab, and when you come near the people of Ammon. So they're going to go through a third nation, a third group of people, territory. When you go through uh, near the people of Ammon, don't harass them or meddle with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession. Because, and the descendants of the people of Am, uh, uh, Ammon were the descendants uh, also of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. So they were blood relatives of the Jews. So you know, don't take Ammon's land because I've given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. That which was also regarded as the land of giants, giants formerly dwelt there, so at that time in history, very, very large statures uh, of people were there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzuman. That's who they displaced from the land. 
Does that name scare anybody else? You want to give a scary name to a group of people? Call them the Zamzumans. I'm already afraid. So that's what they, the, the giants were. They were a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim, the, the ones the Jews were worried about. But the Lord destroyed them before them, before the people of Ammon, and they dispossessed them, and they dwelt in their place, just as he had done for the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in Seir. When he destroyed the Horites from before them, they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place, even to this day. And the uh, Avim, who dwelt in villages as far as Gaza, uh, the Kaphtorim, who dwelt in Kaphtor, destroyed them and dwelt in their place. And so the history again of how the Ammonites took control of that piece of property, uh, again, uh, by the grace and, and command uh, of God. He said then, rise, take your journey, Cross over the brook Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. God said concerning uh, the Amorites and uh, Sihon, who was the king over them, this day I will begin to put, I will, God said, I will do it supernaturally. I will begin to put the dread and the fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Now remember when the spies are sent a little bit later in Joshua, they are sent into the city of Jericho to kind of spy things out and all. And Rahab said, we have heard about you. Everyone is terrified. Uh, that a, a part of that was a, a testimony to the history of what God had done in delivering them from Egypt and also the conquering of these other, other nations. But part of it was a supernatural fear that God had put uh, on uh, these enemies of, of Israel. It's, I think sometimes we, uh, it would be interesting. Well, I don't know if it's worth It's life-changing, trust me. No, with that build-up, I've got to leave it uh, because it's nothing. Anyway, trust me, trust me. It, don't be disappointed. Be happy. Okay. Oh, happy day. <laughs> so put that back in your head. So supernatural fear. And I sent messengers from the wilderness to Kedamoth, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace saying. So the ch children of Israel, we remember we looked at this in the book of Numbers, they were very conciliatory when they approached um, the Amorites and Sihon, uh, the king of, of, of them. They said, please let us pass through your land and I will keep strictly to the road. I will turn neither to the right nor to the left and you shall uh, sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, just as the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir and the Moabites who dwelt in Ar did for me until I crossed the Jordan to the land which the Lord our God has given us. Would you let us just cut through your land and can we buy some food and water from you while we do it? That's, that's, they just asked for that. But, the king, but Sihon, king of Heshbon, he um, would not let us pass through for the Lord our God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. And so uh, we see uh, here God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of God and also man's free uh, human, uh, free moral agency at work in human history. And it's interesting when God, the words that are used in the Hebrew for hardened, uh, and then uh, 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 made his heart obstinate, those verbs, they carry the idea of that, that means that the Lord confirmed what was already in Sihon's uh, heart. Or that it, when something was hardened in those days, it would mean that something became set. It was something that became firm. And so God took a position that Sihon already had in his hand, and God said, all right, I'm going to make that firm in your heart. I think it's important to realize that God's 
divine foreknowledge of, of the hard condition of Sihon's uh, heart toward the children of Israel doesn't mean that he uh, destroyed Sihon's uh, freedom to choose in, in the situation there. His free will wasn't destroyed. And thus, uh, the responsibility for the decision that he, he made wasn't destroyed either. The Bible teaches in terms of even our own salvation, Romans chapter 8, that there is a, a sovereignty of God that is involved in our salvation, but there is also a free moral agency, a freedom to choose in our salvation. Uh, and, and so you, you, you have to have both of them come together. You're going to become unbalanced in how we view God, how we view uh, His place, how we view man's place in human history. And uh, it's always going to be mysterious to us until we get into heaven. When we get into heaven, one of the things that we're going to say to God concerning, one of the songs we're going to sing to God in heaven is, Righteous and true are your judgments. We're going to praise Him for that. When we see how He handled every single person, every single situation, when we see how uh, free moral agency of man and, and the right of choice and then God's sovereignty all kind of came together and all of the decisions in human history, we're going to look at God and say, too much, righteous and true are your judgments. And uh, so here is a case, even as it says in Romans chapter 8, that God chose us to be saved before the foundation of the earth, but the Bible says that he also chose us out of his foreknowledge. He knew that we would choose him and he chose us as a result. That's about as complicated as I can get on, on the issue before my mind starts to fry. There is something called the vanishing point on all of this. And that is, you can take any truth of God. The vanishing point is where you're out there on the Bonneville salt flats, right? You just look as far as you can look, you know. And you see a guy say to Tim, Hey, Tim, start running. I mean, and I want you to take a big red flag and go out there and... Uh and, and I want you to plant that flag uh, right at the moment that I lose, lose sight of you and I can't see you anymore. So you just send them out and send them walkie-talkie, go, 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 go. And then right there, boom, put it down. That's the vanishing point. I can't see anything beyond that. Everything beyond that is beyond my physical limitations of, my, uh, of, of who I am as a human being. But the Bonneville salt flats goes way beyond that. You take any subject of God, any subject, whether it's his sovereignty or free moral agency or you take any, his election, you take any of those subjects and you can take and we can track it out only so far. And we put that flag right there and then he takes it infinitely beyond that in his understanding. And I'm really accepting of mystery in a relationship with God because a God that's small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship because he's smaller than us as a result of that. And already, I, I didn't like worshiping myself. I shouldn't want to worship something smaller than myself. And so I really accept mystery in, in these things. There is a human responsibility for the decisions that we make. They, play, they have a part in how human history unfolds. And yet, as we look at human history, God is directing it at the same time toward his God-appointed end. So... Uh, here is this hardening of his heart, making him firm in his position, because God is going to overrule a position that he's already taken in his heart and work it for uh, God's own good and purposes. And the Lord said to me, See, I've begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to possess it, that you may inherit his land. And then Sihon and all of his people came out to fight against us at Jahaz, and the Lord our God delivered him over to us, and so we defeated him, his sons, and all his people. We took all his cities at that time, and we utterly destroyed the men, women, the little ones of every city. We left none remaining. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves and the spoil of the cities which we took from Aroer, uh, which is on, the, uh, is on the bank of the river Arnon, and from the city that is in the ravine as far as Gilead. There was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all to us. Only do not go near the land of the people of Ammon, uh, anywhere along the river Jabbok or to the cities of the, mount, uh, of the mountains or wherever the Lord our God has forbidden us. Now, in God's 
com- uh, commanding the complete destruction of uh, the Amorites here. And later he, he's going to call upon Joshua and the children of Israel to destroy the population of the promised land in their conquest. Either, either they would uh, vacate the land or they would be destroyed. And sometimes we can look at things and, and think that's... that's uh, uh, that's a shedding of a lot of blood, and, and it really is. But one of the things that we have to uh, understand, number one, only God can make that call. No human being can make that call. But God is able to look at a human population and a section of the human population, and when he looks at that, he can look at a group and say, they are so infected with evil and wickedness, their sin is so debauched and, and so ungodly and so unrighteous. Uh, for instance, when the Canaanites that the Jews would dis- uh, dispossess in the land of Canaan, I mean, they're burning their children alive, their firstborn to their gods. That you, you, go to, you go to any major library, look up Canaanites, and look up religious practices of the, of the, the Canaanites, and you're, when you're talking about religious practices, you're talking about something that is deeply held by a group of people, and it's horrifying. I mean, you can't, you, I can't, you can't talk about it in a mixed company here in terms of what, what they did in, in the worship of their gods. So God, if He looks at a group of people and He says, not one of them is going to turn to Me. They are blight in the human condition. They are an affront. To, to what heaven stands for. They are an influence for evil in the world. They're never going to change. Not one of them is going to change. I'm going to judge them and remove them and their influence from planet earth. He's free to do that. But only he is free to do that because only he is able to see with that kind of clarity. Here's an illustration that I think is helpful on it. If you uh, were playing with uh, your four-year-old and your two-year-old at one of the city parks. And as, you're, as they're playing on the playground and that kind of, a, of thing, let's say you've got uh, a permit to carry a concealed weapon, and uh, the kids are playing on the playground or what, and you're some distance away, and all of a sudden you see, you see a, a rabid dog enter into the, play, uh, to the park area, and that dog starts to make a beeline toward your, your, your child. Now, when a dog has rabies, it has the seed, seed sown for its own destruction already within it. It's incurable. Nothing's going to change about that dog. The only question about that dog is how many people is that dog going to destroy before it ends up destroyed. So that dog is making a beeline for your kids. You pull that, that gun out and you shoot that dog dead before it gets to your children. You'd be perfectly righteous in doing so to stop the, the, the spread of what infected that dog. And God is free, and you take the illustration, carry it over to mankind, God is free to wipe that out himself. The fact of the matter is, he's going to do a fair amount of that during the Great Tribulation, though there will be the freedom to choose. Many people will get saved during the Great Tribulation period. So he wiped, the, the, the people are wiped out uh, of the Amorites at that time. And then we turned and we went up uh, the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us. They wanted to fight against us. And he and all the people to battle at, uh, at Edrei. And the Lord said to me, Don't fear him, for I've delivered him and all of his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. And so the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, uh, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time, and there was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities. This is a big victory. All the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan, all these cities were fortified with high walls, gates and bars besides the great rural towns. And so they, they had the children of Israel that Moses is speaking to here 
They had already defeated this enemy. So he's saying, you remember all those high walls? You remember all those cities? You remember the, these the, the great soldiers that we defeated and all? Listen, it's already a part of our history. God's given us that victory, so when we face it in the conquest of the promised land, uh, it won't be new to you. In other words, God is preparing them for the promised land. He's, got, he's developing a history of his faithfulness with them in warfare. And, and for us, it's a spiritual warfare. He's developing a, a, a history of faithfulness uh, to them so that when they get into the battles of the promised land, they'll be prepared for them. God never allows us to enter into something that we haven't been prepared for when, as we walk obediently uh, with him. And so we utterly destroyed them as we did uh, uh, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and the children of every city. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. And at that time we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon uh, Syrian, and the Amorites call it Sinir. And all the cities of the plain, all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as uh, Salca and uh, Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead uh, was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the king of Ammon? So apparently in Rabbah they had like a museum or something for beds of kings. And so they had this bed, and it was gigantic that this king uh, slept on. Nine cubits is its length. That's 13 and a half feet. That's a good-sized bed. That's custom. That's no California king or anything like that. Four cubits, six feet wide was its width, according to the, st uh, the standard cubit. And the standard cubit, a cubit was 18 inches of the distance from your elbow to the tip of your finger. But that's for a regular person, not a giant person. I love the details, the word of God. And this land which we possessed at that time from Roer, which is by the river Arnon, and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities I have given to the Reubenites and the Gadites. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to half the tribe of Manasseh. All the region of Argob with all Bashan was called the land of the giants. Jair the son of Manasseh took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machahathites and called Bashan after his own name, uh, Havoth Jair, to this day. So what basically Moses is repeating to them is a part of their recent history where the two and a half tribes wanted land on the east side of the Jordan River rather than conquering the promised land. And so he's speaking about how the land was divided uh, among them. And so I gave Gilead to Machir and to the Reubenites and the Gadites. I gave from Gilead as as far as the river Arnon, the middle of the river, as the border, as far as the river uh, Jabok, remember that from Jacob's uh, wrestling, the, the border of the people of Ammon. And the plain also with the Jordan as the uh, border from Chinnereth, so talking about the Sea of Galilee, far as the east side of the Sea of uh, uh, Arabah, which is the salt sea of the Dead Sea below the slopes of Pisgah. And so he's giving, you know, just where the, the three, two and a half tribes were to settle in that eastern side of the Jordan. And then I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All you men of valor shall cross over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel. So he's talking to the two and a half tribes. He's saying, all right, you got the land on the east side, but you've got to follow your brethren into battle and the, the rest of the tribes of Israel for the con uh, conquering of the land. In other words, no little section of the children of Israel were to elevate their needs or their wants or their desires above the health and the good of the whole nation. We got ours, forget about the rest of you. Now think about this, uh, every time they've got a new article in the newspaper or something about uh, all the pork in the federal budget. By the way, I don't understand how people get away with that. I don't get to put pork in my budget. So how did the government get it? Well, they say, okay, we don't want to go there, do we? All right, I'll have a radio show before too long. So, but... 
it, it is ridiculous. And, but you, where you see, here's one group or one constituency or one part of the United States, and they're, they're trying to get what's more for themselves at the expense of what's good for the nation of a whole. And, of course, there's no future in that. You're going to just fragment a country or fragment a people. The children of Israel, they were different than the United States. I mean, they were a theocracy. They were an ethnically one, one people. But here's the same point. Don't elevate your own self-interest above the, the, the goals of God overall for the nation. Become a part of that. And to their credit, they did that. But your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall stay in your cities which I have given you until the Lord has given rest to your brethren as to you and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them beyond the Jordan then each of you after the conquest of the land you may return to your possession your families your land all your things uh, which I have given you and I commanded Joshua at that time saying your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings so Joshua, now listen, we just conquered these two kings. They should have whooped us. They should have taken us behind the woodshed and just given us what for. But we conquered them because God is with us. And, and so, you, 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 again, God's developing your faith, Joshua, here. And so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass talking about the conquest of the land, you must not fear them. Here's the reason why. Give me one reason why. All right, I'll give you one, but it's a good one. For the Lord your God uh, himself fights for you. Okay? One plus God, it's a majority. Victory is assured. Whatever side God is on, that's going to win. God's on our side. So we just uh, obey him and walk with him. Now, as Moses is recounting all of this, um, and he's been through these victories against uh, Og and, and Bashan and all these, these great victories that God has given uh, the children of Israel. Uh, and he then speaks up and he uh, speaks to the Lord related to all of it. And he says, uh, then I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O oh Lord God, you've begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. Just to plead with God. And basically what's happening with him here is, is he's seeing all of these victories. God giving these victories to the children of Israel. He gets excited. God. What you have done here on the east side of the Jordan, you're going to do that to the whole land. Can I be a part of it? And that's what he requests. He said, I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan who's pleasant, uh, and those pleasant mountains in Lebanon. Lord, you've just given me a foretaste of what you're going to do in the whole land, and you've said I can't go in. Have you thought, you're thinking any differently on that? Could I go in? It's interesting to notice. He doesn't say, can I lead the children of Israel in here, and can we just kind of bump Joshua? He doesn't say that. He said, I'm willing to be a buck private. I just want to go in with the people and watch what you do and be a part of it. That's what he's asking for. I mean, he's so full. He's 120 years old. He's going to die without his eyesight being dim at all. No glasses, nothing like that. No stigmatisms. No farsighted, no nearsighted. Hate the guy. <laughs> he dies at full strength. And I mean, his spirit is still so strong. God, I want, I want to, I want to, I'd like to, to do that. But the Lord... Uh, was angry, he said, with me on your account, and he wouldn't listen to me. And so the Lord said to me, he lets us know about the conversation he had with the Lord, and the Lord said to him, enough of that, speak no more to me on that matter. Now, it is true. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, God answers prayer. And he does. He's got three answers. Yes, no, and wait. Only like one of those answers, typically. I mean, there's one that really rises above the other two for me. 
typically. I like that, yes. But sometimes there's the teaching with prayer. If we're just earnest enough, if we just believe enough, if we just want enough, it'll always be yes. That's not true. Set ourselves up for disappointment in prayer. He wants this so bad. He's got so much faith. He's got more faith than probably anyone in all of Israel at this point in time. God said, no. I'm not going to have you go in and do that. But I'll do the very best, next best that I can do for you, uh, Moses. I want you to go up on the top of Pisgah. This is how gracious God is. I want you to lift up your eyes toward the west and the north and the south and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. But I want you to see it. I want you to experience as much of it as you can, short of going in and taking it. So it would be a disappointment for Moses. But God knows Moses is going to get into the promised land. And his first introduction to setting down his feet down in the promised land is going to be on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Jesus on that mount. And Peter, James, and John is, is kind of there to witness the whole thing. So Moses is going to get there, but he's going to get there as a part of God's plan. Moses couldn't lead them into the promised land because he's a picture of the law. Joshua is a picture of Jesus. The law can never lead us into the promised land. It takes Jesus to lead us into the promised land. More of that when we get to Joshua. So God's doing like this whole big picture that even he isn't even revealing to Moses at the time. All of it is so outrageously good. But for the moment, it's a no to Moses. And Moses needs to accept that, and he does, by faith, with a good attitude, and now give himself to what God has called him to do at the moment. And he said, but command Joshua, the Lord said to him, command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people and he shall cause them uh, to inherit the land which you will see. And so we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So God says to Moses, Moses, listen, it's a disappointment. My answer to you is a disappointment. You wanted something different, but here's what you need to do is, is not to pout about it. And Moses wasn't going to pout about it. And don't be, you know, disappointed to the point that you're now paralyzed over this. Just do what I want you to do, spend the rest of your life the way I want you to spend the rest of your life, and that is preparing Joshua for what it is that I've called him to do in taking them in for the conquest of the promised land. And as we've seen before, to Moses' credit, there's no whining, there's no sniveling, there's no you know, bitterness or any of that. He gives himself now, and that's part of this whole series of sermons, to encouraging Joshua to step up, be, uh, obey God and watch the great things uh, that happen. So we'll stop there tonight and we'll pick it up in uh, chapter 4 uh, next week. And we'll, uh, yeah, so that's what we'll do.